WNSP presents the No Sleep Podcast Hour, starring David Cummings and the No Sleep Players. Nights of darkness. Fear creeping through your soul. Pounding heartbeats. Join us for tales of horror during the dark hours when you dare not close your eyes. And we're warning you. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Good evening. I'm David Cummings. Thank you for daring to be with us at the No Sleep Podcast Hour. Welcome to our 18th season. Or is it our first season? I'm a little confused because, well, you see, I feel like I'm trapped in an old television. This model is definitely from the 1950s, which was the decade when television became a common form of media. I don't suspect many of you were alive in the 50s. No, even I wasn't born in the 50s. But as you can imagine, the television of the day wasn't like it is now. Some could argue the content was better, while the audio and video quality was rudimentary at best. Television programs were given titles which reflected their length. I suppose that's why the No Sleep Podcast Hour is apropos, even though our episodes run over an hour. Ah well, it was a strange time in television history. Nonetheless, the television of past decades will play a large part in season 18. We're beginning in the 50s. Who knows where we might go next? If you guessed the 60s, then I'll have to ask you to stop being such a smarty pants. But as television slowly started taking over from radio as the most popular form of entertainment, the popular radio programs transitioned with it. Horror presented on the television bore a strong resemblance to the horror radio of the day. As such, old-time radio now becomes old-time television. And the No Sleep Podcast will transition right along with that familiar theme. And so, I hope you'll join me and the entire No Sleep team as we traverse the decades of television and strive to stir up the horrifying tales which began as scratchy black-and-white images blossomed into color, progressed to high definition, and beyond. Now, there is one other aspect of television programs that we're going to adopt this season. It's called the Cold Open. And no, that's not some sort of weird Canadian sex position. It's when a show begins without any credits or introductions. It just jumps right into the story. Well, we're going to be starting our episodes with flash fiction tales at the very beginning, in the spirit of television's cold opens. Naturally, we didn't quite open coldly for this first episode, but if we did, it would have sounded like this. But remember, like listening to most of our stories, we recommend Not Before Bed. Take a look if you'd like. It will only take a second. Nothing. 
But as soon as it clicks to the jam, I'm there, my toes curling in your carpet, inches from your door. As you change, as you turn out the light, I'm there. As you slide down into your linen cocoon, I'm there. I'm patient. I can wait. I press my serrated ear to the wood paneling. I can hear you breathe. I listen as you turn over, shifting your drowsy weight into that familiar position. You're breathing slow. I've listened to you for a long time. I know when you're asleep. And when you are, I slip inside. You are fascinating to me, you creatures that sleep. I lay on your chest and breathe in your scent. Oh, you sleep on your side? I like that better. Then I can squirm up behind you, fold myself to match your form. Sometimes you feel my breath on your neck, or fingernails brushing your hair. But you won't wait. I won't let you. Slumber on as I lay beside you and sing soft nightmares in your ear. I know when you're dreaming, I can smell it. When you mumble in your sleep, I'm the one who answers. When sweat prickles from your tormented dreams, I'm the one who licks the brine from your skin. And when you open your eyes and can't move, it's the fear of me that freezes you. It's the fear of me that halts the voice in your fragile throat. But you get some sleep. I'll See you tomorrow. cold and chilling opening indeed. With our thanks to author Craig Hallam and performer Jeff Clement. And so, sleepless listener, or shall I say viewer, we hope you are fully braced for our 18th season. And as always, we're glad you're with us during the darkness of the night. Now, adjust the antenna. Tune in our signal and settle in front of the TV to watch this week's Nightmares. In our first tale, we meet a young woman enduring the nightmare of moving to New Jersey. 
But alas, there is much more to her harrowing tale. You see, moving means a new school, and the bullies who pick on the different kids. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Selma Dasgupta, Sheila is fortunate to learn about a solution to all her problems. If only they didn't come at such a high price. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Danielle McRae, Ellie Hirschman, Atticus Jackson, Aaron Lillis, and Graham Rowett. And introducing our newest voice actor, Katabel Ansari, starring in the role of Sheila. So, as Sheila learns, desiring something better is a worthy goal. Just be careful when you encounter the Wish-Giver. I think I'm being too melodramatic when I say that 1987 was the worst year of my life. My dad got a job transfer and we moved from Queens to South Jersey. The move broke my heart. New York was all I'd ever known. Our new neighborhood was called Briarville and we were the only Indian family there. Our ethnic background worked against us. We got frigid stares instead of welcome baskets. Teenagers egged our house. My new classmates told me to go back to India, even though I'd been born in Flushing. (sighs) The loneliness was brutal. Then my mom found out her sister had cancer. I had never met my aunt. Her job had always kept her traveling. But she'd moved near Philly after her diagnosis, and my parents decided to visit her a few evenings a week. (sighs) My mom didn't want me to come along. She thought I'd be traumatized. She didn't want me home alone, either, considering our less-than-friendly neighbors. So she got me a babysitter, even though I'd just turned 12. As sad as it sounds, I was happy about this. I thought a babysitter might make a decent substitute for a friend. I wasn't sure how my mom found Corinne. She was 16 and lived with her grandmother. She didn't dress like everyone else. Her style was more Janis Joplin than Madonna, right down to her long red hair. More importantly, Corinne was nice to me. Though, I do think the fact that I grew up close to Manhattan scored points with her. She wanted to go to Parsons to study art after she graduated high school. Corinne was a phenomenal artist. Everything she drew looked alive. This was both ironic and unsettling because she liked to draw the undead. Her zombies and vampires looked ready to leap off her pages. But the scariest was her drawing of an old woman. I saw it on the last page of Corinne's sketchbook one day when she let me flip through it. The woman's teeth looked as sharp as Freddy Krueger's nails. She had green eyeballs without pupils. Eyes that looked like they belonged on a blind, evil cat. Is that a witch? The wish giver. She's like a fairy godmother. No offense, but I don't think Disney's gonna pick up that sketch anytime soon. (laughs) No argument there. (laughs) 
She's not exactly like a fairy godmother. You've got to pay her for wishes. Probably with your soul. It's possible. I've never read about this wish-giver anywhere. You wouldn't have. She's a local legend. Briarville had been around since the Revolutionary War, and towns with history had legends. And ghosts. But the wish-giver looked way more frightening than something that wouldn't stay in the grave. I close Corin's sketchbook. At least she's not real. We don't know that. You think she exists? I've heard... stories. She clearly was not about to elaborate. How would you summon her? Would I have the nerve to lock eyes with that monster crone if it meant returning the queens? I don't know. I'll find out. My grandma knows all this stuff. But I know you really have to want to see her. Obviously. I couldn't shake the sight of those eyes. Have you ever wanted to see her? Hell no. But maybe next year, when I'm applying to Parsons. <laughs> As it turns out, we didn't have to wait that long. Corinne showed up late the next time. Mom was annoyed, but she didn't say anything. It was Corinne's first offense after all. I knew from my babysitter's face that something was wrong. She sank into the sofa, turned on the TV, and flipped through the channels until she got to a teen soap. Her hair smelled dank. When I tried to talk to her, she turned up the volume on the TV. I didn't get why she'd pick that show. The characters were boring and the storyline sucked. I wonder if she had a crush on the lead. He looked like Ricky Schroeder. She laughed when I asked her this. There was hostility in the sound, as though she thought I was making fun of her. I went to my room and stayed there the rest of the evening. When my parents came back, Corin left without saying goodbye. The following Tuesday, my mom asked her to stay with me longer than usual. My aunt had deteriorated. Corin was friendly again. But she didn't explain why she'd been so weird last time. It was warm for October, and we took a walk. One thing I will say about Briarville, it belonged on a postcard. The sky was violet, and some stars were out. A breeze blew and chimes sang from porches. It looked like a place where nothing bad happened. I was about to be very rudely awakened. We walked for 15 minutes and came to a restaurant called Church Street Cafe. Teenagers hung around outside, mostly coupled, some making out. Bon Jovi screamed about prayers from a nearby car. The sign in the window caught my eye. Pizza tonight, New York style. I miss New York pizza so much. I'd had pies at the mall since our move, but Jersey slices didn't cut it when you'd have Lombardi's. <laughs> I was naive, so it didn't occur to me that the sign was false advertising. I just wanted to be in New York again, even if only through my taste buds. Corin refused to go in with me. You don't like pizza? I don't like them. 
She pointed to some people by the stairs. They're in my class. She sounded the way I felt whenever I walked into the school cafeteria during lunch. I wondered if her classmates were why she'd been so moody that day at my house. And it made me angry. Bullies were not going to stop us from getting pizza. I held her hand and pulled her forward, thinking nothing of the gesture. But that's when they noticed us. I was tall, and in the darkness, her classmates probably thought I was older. They went silent, and then a girl's laugh rang out. <laughs> Shrill and mean. Future prom date. <laughs> her dark lipstick made her look ghoulish. Her boyfriend grunted. Hmm. A gum wrapper bounced off my arm. Something hit Corin's face and then fell to the ground. It was a lace panty. To set the mood. <laughs> Everyone roared. Corin wrenched her hand from mine and ran. I followed her. The yellow moon stared down at us. Corin made a strange noise. She sounded as though a cricket were caught in her throat. Are you gonna throw up? Shut up, Sheila. That hurt. But I did. I figured I deserved it for trying to make her go into the cafe. Then I realized she wasn't taking me home. I asked where we were going, but she didn't answer the question. They wouldn't fuck with me if I had a boyfriend. I didn't know what to say to that. But she never cursed around me, and it felt like a bad sign. The wind picked up, sounding almost like an animal as it blew. Corin muttered something nonstop under her breath, but I couldn't understand the words. I thought of the wish giver. Had Corin asked her grandmother how to summon her? Is that what she was doing? I got my answer. We came to a public park, empty since it was long past sundown. I blinked, and when I opened my eyes, an old woman sat on a bench, holding flowers. I thought they were roses, but then I saw their dark, pointy petals lap at the air, like tongues. The woman turned to look at us, and her eyes glowed like green bulbs. Her mouth lengthened into a fang-filled grin. I was too scared to scream. I tried to persuade her to do the same, but it was like trying to catch the wind. Corin slowly walked up to the wish giver, who then handed her one of those nightmare blossoms. Corin put her lips to those tongue petals and muttered something. My heart raced. I was afraid the flower would tear her mouth off, but nothing happened. She gave it back to the wish-giver who said something to her. I couldn't hear. Corinne nodded. Then, she walked back to me. The wish-giver's glowing eyes dimmed as though there had been a brownout inside her head. A buzzing sound filled the air and then like a ghost, she vanished. The wind quieted. This time Corinne held my hand as she led me out of the park. We didn't speak on the way back. I barely heard myself breathe. The lights were on in my house. 
I didn't ask Corinne to come in. When I walked into the living room, my mom was crying on the love seat. My aunt was dead. Since I no longer needed a babysitter, I didn't see Corinne anymore. I called her a few days after the night in the park to make sure nothing horrible had happened to her. I hadn't slept since that night. I'd become afraid of the dark. Corinne picked up the phone. Hey, Sheila. Everything good? Her tone was the equivalent of the Lisa Frank unicorn sticker that had started talking. I was astounded. Had our encounter with that terrifying crone slipped her mind? Uh, sure. Um, are you okay? Yeah. Why? I couldn't believe she was for real. Maybe the wish giver had messed with her head. Um, just curious, are you still drawing monsters? Corin was quiet for a second. I don't have much time anymore. Why? The doorbell rang on her end. I've gotta go. Oh, okay. Sheila, I got my wish! Then, she hung up. One Sunday afternoon, I walked out of the public library and saw Corian across the street. She'd bobbed her hair and was with a guy. They just left, of all places, the Church Street Cafe. I crossed over. Sheila! Her bohemian clothes were gone. She wore a stonewashed denim jacket over a Guns N' Roses t-shirt. She looked mildly embarrassed to see me, as though I'd caught her doing something bad. I stared at the guy next to her. This is Bill, my boyfriend. She said boyfriend as though the word didn't quite belong on her tongue. Bill seemed to notice because he frowned at her. They wouldn't fuck with me if I had a boyfriend. And I knew what she'd wished for. Bill looked like a senior. His arms were meaty and hairy. They made me think of werewolves. His eyes were like blue raspberry popsicles. Bright and cold. I turned back to Corinne. You like guns and roses now? She'd always paid Cindy Lopper around me. Bill got the shirt. Her smile was strained. You want one? He had a teasing, raspy voice. The kind that turns teenage girls on. I just thought he sounded creepy. No. I said. He looked offended, but then he smirked. I'm surprised your name's Sheila. What'd you think it would be? Something no one can pronounce. Bill! Corin's cheeks brightened. It was one thing for my classmates to say something like that to me, but someone that much older? I gave Bill a nasty glare, but this just seemed to satisfy him. Tears pricked my eyes. I quickly walked away from Corin and her so-called boyfriend before they spilled. I went to my only favorite place in Briarville, the Duck Pond. It was a few blocks down from the library. 
The mallage that skimmed the water had flown south. The sun was red and it cast an eerie pink glow on the empty pond. Footsteps pounded behind me and I turned to see Corin. Sheila, I'm sorry, Bill shouldn't have- Why are you with him? Corin looked ruffled by my question, but she answered. They leave me alone now. I waited for her to add something else. She didn't. Her answer depressed me. I turned to look at the marigolds that grew to the left of the pond. A dark flower with pointy petals suddenly appeared among its golden neighbors. I blinked. But then, it was gone. What's wrong? Nothing. Corinne, did you ever pay her? I felt silly for whispering, but I knew what I'd just seen, and fear rumbled in me. She paled. Why? I looked at the marigolds again. Nothing. Had I imagined it? No reason. I can't, Sheila. That night, she said she wanted the first gift my boyfriend gave me. Within one week. She pulled a necklace out from under her shirt. A motorcycle charm hung from a silver chain. It's been two. Why haven't... Because Bill will ask where it is. Tell him it got stolen. He won't care. She went to the marigold patch. Don't go there. Why? The dark flower shot up again and its stem rapidly elongated. Horrified. I watched as the wishgiver's face appeared in the flower's pistol and aimed for Corinne's throat. <laughs> Corinne gasped as her chain snapped. Then the wishgiver bit into Corinne's flesh. <sighs> into the spot right above her heart. The wishgiver shrunk back into the bed, necklace dangling from her fangs as she disappeared. Corinne fell onto the grass. I shook her and cried. She finally opened her eyes and touched the wishgiver's fang marks. There was no blood. She took it. <laughs> At least you're alive. I didn't realize yet that death wears many different clothes. Corinne got up and wobbled. I need a drink. Something with sugar. I feel... She sounded like a zombie. I had a can of Coke in my bag and gave it to her. She practically drained it in one gulp. That's a little better. Do you have another one? Another one? Yeah. I'm out of it. I feel... like she took something. I knew she wasn't talking about the necklace. What? She was silent. The next time I called, Corin's grandmother picked up. Are you one of her friends? She used to babysit me. Sheila? Yeah, is she okay? <laughs> Ma'am? She's alive, right? Of course, don't be stupid. I was so relieved that the rebuke didn't bother me. What's the point of 
like this. I wasn't sure what that meant. Is she still with Bill? I figured only he could arouse this much agitation. Bill? It was three boys ago. <laughs> she cried harder. I felt awkward, but I just couldn't hang up on her. Do you know about the wish giver? Her silence chilled me. Why? I wanted to tell her everything, but I stopped myself. What if hearing the story gave the elderly woman a heart attack? Just asking. I like the picture Corin drew of her. Even now I wonder if I should have just told her about the night in the park. Does she still draw? I asked. Her grandmother hung up. I saw Corinne for the last time in early December. Again, she was outside the Church Street Cafe, alone. She sat on one of the chairs and didn't seem to register who I was when I approached. Has she forgotten me? I just started wearing a bra, but I was still recognizable. She, however, was barely so. Her hair had grown out, but it was tangled. She lost weight and her eyes looked too large. Her hands trembled. She didn't wear gloves, so it could have been the cold, though somehow I felt it wasn't. But then she spoke. Sheila, hey. Huh? She sounded different, as if she was playing at being Corinne. She constantly sniffed at the air, like she was trying to smell something just out of reach. Do you have a cold? Amusement danced over her face, and for a second, I almost saw the old Corinne. No. I felt like she expected me to ask her something, but I wasn't sure what. Are you still applying to art school? Her expression made me step back. <laughs> she laughed. It was a manic noise that didn't sound quite human. She put her head between her knees and the laugh turned into gulping sobs. The restaurant door opened and someone came out. He looked familiar, and I wondered if it was one of the boys from that night we saw the wish giver. Babe, you okay? He wore an apron and looked as gone as Corinne. He also had the nastiest looking teeth I'd ever seen. What'd you say to her? I ran away without a word. My dad got transferred back to his old position and I finished middle school in Queens. It was like waking up from a nightmare. I discovered my own love of drawing when I entered high school. I'd always enjoyed it, but before, I'd only turned to art when there was nothing good on TV. I think seeing Corin waste her talent persuaded me into cultivating mine. By sophomore year, I'd spent hours sketching and painting while Pearl Jam blasted on the stereo. I wanted to go to art school. When I told my parents, the volume of our fights could have broken glass. They said they were absolutely not going to pay for me to spend the rest of my life selling paintings on a sidewalk. Luckily, I got a full scholarship to Parsons, 
so I didn't need to depend on them. I did well. I got a job teaching art at City College and miraculously scored a rent-controlled studio in the East Village. I had a show in one of the Chelsea galleries. I had everything. So I thought, that's the thing about life as a human. There's always just one more thing to wish for. It happened on my 30th birthday. I met a few friends for drinks, and I was the only one at the bar without a significant other. Being single had never bothered me, but that night, watching my friends with their partners made me upset in a way I hadn't been for a long time. I left around midnight and walked around Chelsea by myself. The galleries were closed, but a few kept their lights dim so you could still see paintings inside. I thought I'd feel better if I looked at art, even if it was just from the windows. But I continued to ruminate on what I didn't have, a partner. I started crying. Happy birthday, Sheila. <gasps> a woman grinned at me from under a street lamp. There was no mistake in that face, though it was older and damaged by drug use. Her hair was thick, lush, and red. And it was obviously a wig. Corian? Her dark eyes lit up and turned an unhuman green as their pupils disappeared. My stomach felt like it had plummeted into my legs. She reached into a dirty satchel and took out a dark flower with moving, pointy petals. Make a wish. She spoke to me as though I were still twelve. I couldn't look away from the familiar blossom. It was like there was an invisible hook connecting my eyes to it. The pain I'd felt all night exploded in me. And I was sure only that flower could make it better. The flower was the answer. If I asked it to bring me the love of my life, the pain would stop. As I was about to lean in to make my wish, something flickered at the edge of my vision. The gallery next to me had been dark, but its lights came on and I saw one of my own drawings on the wall. My heart pounded in terror. This gallery had never shown my work. That sketch was still in my book. It was of Corinne, of how she looked when I'd first met her. I'd always meant to turn it into a painting, but it just never happened. I turned back to the green-eyed Corinne in front of me. I don't have a wish. Then I walked away, fast. When I looked behind me, the thing pretending to be Corinne was gone. I lay in bed for a long time after I got home. When I couldn't sleep, I found the sketch of Corinne and took out my paints. I worked on it for weeks. When I was done, I knew it was my best painting. And yet I knew that I would be the only one to ever see it. I needed it as a reminder of how easy it is to succumb to monsters. Since that night, I've been asked to make wishes many times. Mostly on birthdays. It's not that I don't wish for things anymore. I just have too much experience with seeing what happens when some of them come true. So now, when someone asks me what I want, I look at that person. Imagine Corin smiling back at me. 
and force myself to forget my wish. When we're in our homes, we can usually relax and be ourselves, right? We don't need to worry about acting certain ways, wearing the right clothes, being something we think society demands but isn't really us. But in this tale, shared with us by author Samuel McQuail, we realize that sometimes what's outside our front doors might require us to fit in and be just like everyone else. Performing this tale is Peter Lewis. So let's learn how one man manages to fit in as he explains why I wear the mask. The cold porcelain mask stares up at me, its smooth surface twisted into a smile. Fake. It's the only way to describe its expression. Broad billiard ball eyes in sunken sockets. And a grin too big for its own cheeks. Sometimes I grin back. As if maybe I can try to match it for once. As if I could ever look how they want me to. It never works. A cacophony thumps at the walls. Endless chaos that beats its way into my head all day and night. I can't sleep through the sudden shouts and the banshee wails. My own hollow eyes ache. A quick glance across the cramped space I call home reassures me that, yes, the windows and doors are locked and bolted, seven for each. I can't be too careful. They always try to creep and crawl their way inside my Spartan sanctuary. There is nothing to take here. Nothing except for me. I pull the mask over my face. A few slow breaths steady myself as it grinds against my skin. Missing pupils let me peer through and the world peers back. I tell myself over and over that it's a short trip. I've done it before and I can do it again. No food left, so I'll have to go eventually. The comforting weight of my backpack helps means I have a goal, that I have something I can do besides stew in my loneliness. But the mask presses insistently on my mind. What if today is the day I make a mistake? I hurry through the locks, counting off each one. The numbers ground me, keep me moving forward despite my trembling. One goes to two, down to three, opening four. When I'm done, the door swings open. And I have no choice but to go. No choice but to slip into the dark corridor, carefully picking past debris and filth. Down the old metal steps whose clanking echoes around me. Out through the open foyer, between ruined decorative pillars sprouting rebar branches and into the world. They loom above me, ghoulish giants on spindly limbs clicking on concrete streets 
Hunched backs, arms that reached the ground, bones threatening to tear through thin, translucent skin. Serpentine necks crane above the crowds of monsters and snoop along underbellies, always watching, always sniffing and snarling and scrounging for something, someone. I wait for one to pass by me before stepping into the river of twisted bodies. The chittering, gurgling conversations reverberate between garish buildings that claw their way into a dead, grey sky. I've never seen another person in this city, not alive, at least. The iron stench of blood lingers everywhere. If I watch long enough, I can start to work out the differences between them. The patterns they scar themselves with, or the blood they've drawn and dragged over their skin. Subtle shades in the thin strands of hair limply draped over their necks. The nonsensical patterns of head tilting and talon clicking. Slowing my pace lets me watch their rituals for a while longer. It gives me time to try and puzzle out the curious dances. I can't stare for too long. Oh, they hate that. I snap back to reality too late. One of them drops its head down to my level. I skid to a stop. Hold back my scream as its face hovers inches from mine. The same impossible grin lined with yellowish teeth. The same billiard ball eyes set in black in the sockets. It cocks its head past ninety degrees, neck cracking and wispy hair brushing the ground, breathless, blood frozen in my veins, keeping my eyes firmly locked with its own. I want to look away. I want to look anywhere else but those narrowing pupils, but then it did know all of them would. It bobs its head four times and burbles. I do the same and wait. Warbling, it pulls its head away and lumbers over and past me. I can't afford a sigh of relief. Any break from the ritual alerts the rest. All I can do is swallow the lump in my throat and keep going, keep looking forward. An old skyscraper stands like a dead titan, its glass shattered and its guts bare. Around the lobby the things gather, hauling lumps of flesh in their teeth and monstrous corpses in their claws. The weak, the sick, the old, and other creatures too. Things I don't know of, nor care to. It doesn't matter once it's thrown into the pile. Rot, iron, and the reek of decay flood my senses with each breath. I swallow back bile as I inch closer. And the sound of an orgy of gnashing teeth and the wet smacks of lips that never stay closed. They take a single bite of splintering bone and discard the meat. They gargle blood and water in the drippings of torn flesh. Their shrieking and chattering dig into my skull. The same way their claws crack through the head of one of their dead young. One of them buries its head into the torn open stomach of another, chewing through guts and gore. I recognize the corpse, the pattern of scars torn into its neck and the pale shade of their hair. I almost feel pity for it. What small thing had it done to condemn itself, bowed at the wrong time, warbled when it should have clicked? 
Well, none of that matters now. Now it's just another thing to be chewed up. I snatch the scraps that tumble to the floor and stuff them in my backpack. A thin plastic liner keeps the worst of the juices contained. It won't last for long, though. Maybe by the time I get back, preserve it, stow it away in my lockboxes, I'll have the energy to make a meager meal before I collapse into bed. Not likely. But the hope is something like a rush of warm air under imaginary wings. The journey back is worse. Their eyes burn into my back, though I know they aren't watching. I've done it all right. I nodded and burbled and walked straight on without a click of interest from the things milling around me. The meat weighs me down, making each step sluggish. It's fine. I tell myself it's fine. It's... I trip. The mask slips. It skips across the concrete as I crash to the ground. A dozen clicking conversations go silent. My heart stops, and I try to pull myself to my feet before they come. But it's too late. They're already on me, screeching, screaming, howling. Talons rake across my skin, pulling me every way at once. As they lift me into the air, they hook my lips and pull my mouth into a grin. I shout and struggle, pulling myself out of their grasp, barely landing on my feet. The swarm blocks out everything else. Nothing but a storm of spindly limbs whirling and crashing against each other as they fight to snatch me up. I barely get a step. A dozen hands dig into my backpack. A dozen more yank my arm behind me. Hot blood gushes out of my pricked skin. Tears bud in my eyes. My voice growing hoarse. They won't listen. They don't care. One shoves its foot into the small of my back and pulls my arm further and further. Bone cracks, shoulder splits, skin screams as it's stretched. They snap and gnash in confusion. They don't understand. Why doesn't my arm bend? Why can't it stretch? No matter how much they tug and pull, and no matter how much they break my bones, they don't understand why my arm can't be as long as theirs. A brawl breaks out between them. I squirm out from the straps of my backpack and tumble to the floor. They rip through the fabric and shower me with the meat scraps within. I crawl and stumble and scream. Where is it? Did they smash it? Where is my mask? White porcelain shines between gray limbs. I lunge, smacking again into hard concrete and knocking the wind from my chest. My fingers brush the chipped surface. Clawed hands and feet stomp around me. Come on, just a little. Yes! I roll onto my back and pull the mask over my face. They stop and stare. Raised limbs lower as their snarling faces snake down, their eyes narrow as they scrutinize me, the ground, each other. Where did it go? Where did that thing disappear to? I pull myself up, and the hundred eyes burn my skin. I smile behind cracked porcelain, hoping to bring the impossible grin into my eyes. My shattered arm hangs limp by my side, twitching as I try to hold the shoulder straight. 
I pray they don't see the hot tears as they drip off my chin. I pray they don't see every wince and shudder as lances of pain bring me to the brink of screaming. I pray that all they see is the mask. If you were watching TV in the 1950s, you'd no doubt see commercials for a form of entertainment which was quite popular back then, the circus. And even though they're not as popular as they once were, there are still some performing around the country. And in this tale, shared with us by author Angela Sylvain, we learn about a circus which is very well attended. Sounds great, right? Well, not when you realize that for this show, attendance is not optional. I join Mary Murphy, Matthew Bradford, Jesse Cornett, Nicole Goodnight, and Lindsay Russo in performing this tale. So don't you dare miss this one. It's a three-ring circus of horror when you attend the Cyclone Sisters Traveling Circus of Wonders. Three circus tickets appeared in our mailbox last week. The thick golden paper ornately embossed with a personal invitation for each of us to attend. My hands only tremble a little as I tuck the tickets into the pocket of my green party dress and slip on my ballet flats. Easier to run away in once we're allowed. Normally, I'd cinch my hair into a tight bun, but the dishwater brown mass hangs loose tonight. Folks say the sisters prefer the girls to wear their hair down. Sam calls up the stairs. A wobble in his voice. Eliza, we'll be late. Coming! I dab blush on the apples of my cheeks and apply a smear of lip gloss. It's important to look nice, but not too nice. Not too noticeable. Sam waits at the bottom of the stairs. The oversized blue suit he borrowed from Dad hanging off his narrow shoulders. Mama would have made sure he had a proper suit. My eyes burn at the thought, but I can't let him see me cry. Not today. You look nice, Sammy. I lick my fingers and smooth down the calic that tufts his blonde hair on one side of his part. R really? He watches me with wide, trusting eyes. You're going to do fine, and I'll be right there with you the whole time. We'll all be perfect. There's no other option. Okay. He raises his chin, but still reaches for my hand. I square my shoulders and lead him through the front door. This is my fourth year attending the circus. And I remember every act, every smell, every scream. If I could protect Sam from this, I would. But once you hit age 12, attendance is required. Dad stands on the front porch. He takes a swig from a metal flask before slipping it in the pocket of his rumpled sport coat. Are you trying to get picked? It would almost be a relief 
to only have to care for Sam. Regret at the thought punches me hard, right in the center of my chest. I blow out a breath. Dad, please, just lay off a little today, okay? He meets my gaze for just a second, his eyes red and bloodshot, maybe from drinking, maybe from the sobbing he thinks we don't hear. Okay, Lilo. We follow his shambling down the steps to fall in beside the rest of the townspeople that fill the sidewalk. As a group, we move silently toward the edge of town. A shiver dances over my bare arms at the sight of the grand red and white striped tent that has sprung up in the field. Sam grips my hand tight. The first time is always the hardest. I plaster a wide smile on my face. I can't wait for the show. Sam's lips stretch to their limit. I'm so excited. His voice shakes, but it's okay. I'm the only one who's heard. A wooden archway makes the entrance to the fairground and displays a larger version of the flyers posted throughout town. Come one, come all. See our array of freaks and oddities, prepared to be terrified and amazed. The Cyclone Sisters' traveling circus of wonders, in town for one night only, must be seen to be believed. I wonder what new acts there will be this year. Dad's voice is flat, not trying hard enough. My pulse picks up speed as we step through the entrance and follow the crowd toward the main tent. The scent of buttery popcorn, roasting nuts, and sweet candied apples wafts over us, but the tantalizing lie is spoiled by the underlying taint of rotten meat. The barker towers over us as we near the tent's entrance, elevated on stilts and clothed in a blood-red suit with a matching top hat. You folks are in for quite a show. I beam up at him and hand over our tickets. My hands steadied by pure will. Sam mimics my enthusiasm, just as I taught him. Tomorrow, I'll make him something extra special for dinner. Play whatever dumb game he wants. Anything to help my baby brother forget this night. We're swept inside. The darkness is broken by flames ahead and the narrow entry opens to a ring of torches surrounding a barren patch of dirt. I shuffle toward the first of three sets of bleachers on my right, and watch as the others fill in each row from top to bottom, leaving our family to sit in the very front. If only we'd walked a little slower, or a little faster. Dad slumps on the cold metal bench. Front row seats. Aren't we lucky? Yes, Daddy. Sam's grip on me tightens until I think he might break my fingers, but I don't pull away. The melody of a pipe organ, slightly off-tune, lilts through the air. I follow the sound to the corner of the tent, where a shriveled leather-like creature hunches on the bench behind the instrument, pressing the keys with clawed fingers. The barker strides into the center of the circle. His spindly limbs and exaggerated movements, those of a grotesque insect. Welcome, one and all, to the Cyclone Sisters' traveling Circus of Wonders. This year is certain to be the best show yet. The last of the townspeople have filed in, and I risk a peek at the last set of bleachers. One full row sits empty. 
Cast your eyes on our freaks and oddities. The torches glare, illuminating the cages on either side of the tent. The first holds a young woman with three arms, not by birth defect, but by some barbaric surgery that has left her with an extra limb sewn to the side of her neck. She snarls and grips the bars, as if trying to pry them apart. The second cage houses an old man writhing on the floor. He appears to have been flayed of his skin, leaving only exposed muscle. I make myself look. We must look. Sam whimpers beside me. It's just wonderful, isn't it? I infuse my voice with steel determination. You can do this, Sammy. The Barker gestures behind him. Please join me in welcoming the amazing, the terrifying, the truly one-of-a-kind Cyclone Sisters! We all stand to clap and scream and cheer as the sisters appear just outside the flames. If they have names, I've never heard them, but I call them Light and Shadow, Light's hair shimmers like snow in the sun, a perfect match to her sparkling silver gossamer gown. Shadow's blue-black curls are an extension of her deep midnight velvet dress. Both wear their locks, twisted around and around in a swirling mass that teeters atop their heads, swaying and tipping with each step. The two enter the circle to stand on either side of the barker, each carrying a thin silver cord that continues behind them into the darkness. Prepare to be amazed. Light's lips remain still, her voice cutting through my head like a shard of ice. Sam claws my hand, but I cement a happy expression on my face. Prepare to be terrified. Shadow's mental command is laced with a despair so profound A sob tries to escape from my mouth, but I swallow it. They each release the ends of their cords, letting the silver strands hover in the air. With a flick of their fingers, they send the cords up toward the apex of the tent. Pale figures emerge from the shadows at the back of the tent, seemingly tugged along by the strands. I gasp as the absent townsfolk come fully into the light. Each person's chest is pierced by the court. Some are dressed up, as if they were on their way but didn't quite make it, while others wear street clothes, as if they thought to skip or flee. No one escapes the circus. I brace for their cries of pain, but there are none. I lean forward, straining to see, and have to contain my scream when I realize what's been done. They have no mouths only a flat expanse of skin covering the bottom half of their faces. All around me, cheers erupt through the bleachers. I urge Sam to his feet. We join in. The cord lifts the townspeople into the air, one by one, until they hang high above us like paper lanterns, writhing and twisting in the wind. A shoe falls from someone's foot to land in the dirt below. Bile spills into my mouth, but I choke the nastiness back down. Mama wore her best patent leather heels that day, but one slipped from her foot to land in the entryway. That shoe, sitting all alone, stark black on the white tile, was the first thing I saw 
her body swinging from the banister was the second. More applause. Sam sniffles beside me, and I want to reach out to him, squeeze him tight. But instead I clap and clap until my skin is raw. Truly outstanding! The sisters curtsy, their hair swaying to one side, then the other. For this next trick, we'll need a volunteer from the audience. The barker teeters closer as a bright spotlight illuminates the bleachers. You! He points one spindly finger at the front row, and I know who he's chosen. But they can't take my dad. I can't lose him, too. Terror freezes me in place as the spotlight narrows, narrows, narrows until the light shifts away. Relief floods through me. We're okay. We're going to be okay. But the light hasn't moved on. It stopped right next to me. Oh God, Sam! But they can't. He's just a boy. The others in the stands catcall and holler as the people directly behind us push my little brother until he's forced from the bench. He falls to his hands and knees in the dirt. No! I move to go after him, but Dad clamps his hand around my waist, holding me tight. I writhe and struggle, but his grip is like a vice. Stop. Please. The sisters gaze at Sam, smiles warping their faces. Come, little one. Light sing-song command echoes through my mind. Come join the show. Shadow's mental voice reeks with the promise of pain. Sam rises to take several jerking steps forward like a marionette on strings. Their puppet. He enters the ring and is spun in place to face the crowd. His tear-streaked face is ghostly in the firelight and his mouth gapes wide in a soundless scream. I wrench away from Dad and race toward Sam. The barker lunges toward me, but I grab a torch from the circle and shove it in his direction. Flames ignite the cuffs of his pants and rise up his legs. Burn, you bastard. The crowd goes silent, their forced enthusiasm doused by fear. Not for me or Sam, for themselves. There will be consequences for this. Give me back my brother! My scream rises above the pained wail of the barker. The flames threaten his face now, and he careens toward the side of the tent. I reach Sam and pull him to my chest as the sisters watch me, their faces emotionless porcelain masks. They pay no attention to the barker who crashes into the tent. Flames spread to the white and red striped fabric eating it inch by inch. The sisters open their mouths and release their cyclone shrieks to whip around my head, stab my eardrums, my eyes, my tongue. I taste blood, feel the warmth of it blowing down my face, and my legs crumple. Sam slips from my arms to lie on his back in the dirt, his face stained crimson. The needling shrieks rise and gust over us to whip into the crowd. I watch as the townspeople scream and bleed. Dad claws at his own face, howls and writhes, then falls still. All around him are neighbors wilt like dying flowers. Dad's mutilated face stares back at me, 
Dead eyes accusing as I gather Sam onto my lap. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I should have gotten him a new suit. I should have prepared him better for the show. Sam opens his mouth, tries to talk, but gives a wet cough instead, spraying my neck and face with blood. No, no, no! I grip him tighter and rock in place. This is all my fault, all my fault! The sisters close their mouths, and the shrieks stop, leaving the tent in silence except for the lilt of the organ and the lick of flames on fabric. They move to stand before me. You can't have him! The salty taste of my tears mixes with copper and coats my tongue. They're going to kill us both. Do anything you want to me. I don't care. Please, just let him go. They lean closer. Light's eyes become pure white. No iris, no pupil, no veins. Entranced, I feel Sam being tugged from my arms, but I can't resist. I can't look away. Light grasps my face, and frigid cold leeches from her skin to mine. Anything... Her voice sounds almost normal, almost human. Fear claws my insides, urges me to run away, but I can't. I won't leave him. Anything. She squeezes my jaw, forcing my mouth wide, then seals her lips to mine. Frost consumes my insides, spreading until desperate cold is all I feel. Stinging pain turns to numbness, then nothingness. I fall back. My muscles limp, and my head flops to the side. I watch Shadow's eyes turn to Onyx. Putrid black smoke seeps from her mouth as she presses her lips to Sam's. The old-fashioned wooden carriage we call home rocks and sways as we make our way up the steep dirt road. Sam shifts in his seat beside me with a groan. I'm hungry, Lila. He doesn't make eye contact. Can't. The constant stark whiteness of my gaze pains even him. I tug the quilt up to his chin. I know, Sammy. His skin is sickly pale against his now blue-black hair. Only a week since his last feeding, and already he lacks the glow of life. I peer out the window as we pass a signpost marking the next town's fairground entrance. Come one, come all. Prepare to be terrified and amazed. The Cyclone Sisters' traveling circus of wonders, featuring the Carrion children, in town for one night only, must be seen to be believed. The sickening smell of roasting nuts and candied sweets wafts through the air but they can't hide the enticement of coppery blood and fresh meat. A black pit of ravenous hunger consumes me, demanding attention. I press my cheek to Sam's head, cradling him against me. Tomorrow you can eat as much as you like. Okay, Sammy? I'll even let you choose which game we play with the townspeople. Anticipation of their deliciously sweet screams of pain swells inside me. I hope they try to run.
Isolation is something that a lot of us experienced in the past couple of years. Not going out, being alone with yourself, trying to keep your mind occupied. Not an easy task. And as we hear in this tale, shared with us by author Alex Bestwick, one man finds that he's not exactly alone in his isolation. There's something there with him, or within him. Performing this tale are David Alt and Erica Sanderson. So try not to get too attached to others, especially ones like Crooker. Water curls over the lip of the cave-like curtains. I shiver back into the curve of earth and damp soil patters around me. The shelter protects me from the elements a little, but I am already sodden. I am lost. I am ten. I am terrified. The last thing I am is protected. Far below, the river sings a war cry, laughing and lapping at its embankments. The trees scream and creak under the brutal bend of the wind. Lightning veins across the sky and turns the clouds momentarily to purple slate. Thunder shakes the world. Cacophonous. I learned that word in English class and I cling to it now. I try to line up the letters like scrabble tiles in my mind, but trembles keep shaking them from place. A crack lashes the night and a thick branch slams down at the entrance. The noise only rises, rioting through the dark. I cringe back further and pray someone will find me. Despite the din, I hear the faintest of whispers, for it comes right by my ear. Rain and sunlight slant together against the windows of my apartment. There'd be a rainbow if I got up to look. I don't. The glare hits my laptop screen and bounces off the white of the page to stab my eyes. Something thuds against my skull like a fly who has lost the open window. I catch the dark form of my reflection clumped on the screen. A reflection. I'm making that slip more and more lately, conflating it and me. I adjust the angle of the screen and press a button on the keyboard. A static wends from the speaker, swallowing the first sentence of a conversation. Strangers talk and I listen. I snatch their words from the air and put them to page. I, I never join in. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. By the time they reach me, the conversations are already over. Recorded who knows when. Recently, most of them, they talk of viruses and hope for vaccinations. Occasionally, voices clamber from the past, blissfully ignorant. When asked what she's done with her day, this respondent laments the busyness of a trip to the swimming pool. What luxurious, revolting problems to have. I transcribe. The client doesn't want word for word. Most don't. All speech is disorder and chaos, but that's only evident on the page verbatim. Clients want sense, so I parse it for them. I slash through her ums and likes, her sentences which go nowhere. Invisible, I guide a narrative that has nothing to do with me. The rain flings against the window, my fingers on the keyboard match its patter. I've been doing this for years, and I can almost keep up with their words. 
The respondent speaks of ileostomies and diversions. I don't know what these are and I don't care enough to look it up. It doesn't matter. She's telling a story, but the story is for someone else, someone already in the know. Nobody remembers I exist. I sigh. Out of habit, I think. I'm not particularly bored or discontent. I'm not particularly anything, really, except mildly hungover and pushing aside the encroach of a migraine. Those things are easy to drown out. I focus on the doctor. She rattles jargon, her words clattering with nonsense, but there are worse stories to tell. Underwater, the world muffles. My senses constricted, it is easier to sift through the irrelevant survivors. The heat of the bathwater, the swirling song of blood in my head, to the most important, the weight of his embrace on my chest. No, no, not embrace. The implications of that word don't fit, it's too tender, too familiar. At this point, he and I, we are familiar, but there is nothing tender about our little game. We're playing chicken, wrapped together beneath the surface. Which of us will drown first? I break the surface with gasps and splutters and sobs. As always, he rises with me. <laughs> Stalemate. Dribble froths from my thirsty mouth, and I shudder to my feet, nearly slipping as I clamber from the tub. I catch myself against the sink and grip the porcelain tight. It is dewy from the steam, and the mirror is a fog. I step toward it and lift my hand. My fingers are red and water-wrinkled. I hover over the mirror, then swipe through the mist. He stares back. Gnarled skin, greyish and green, hair like lank strings of black moss. His face twists towards yawning eye holes, and he's as naked and dripping as me. Almost two decades now, since that night in the storm. At first he stood behind me, nowadays he stands in front. I've long since forgotten my own face. I only see him. I must have heard the story of Crooker long ago. It's from Cromford, the Derbyshire town where I grew up, where my family still live, where I dread returning each holiday. It makes sense that someone would have told it. For a long time it was swallowed by the haze of childhood. But after that night I researched the whispered word and the story clicked back into place. The way a suddenly remembered dream can fill the excavated void it left when you first woke. It must have been there beforehand. I still try to convince myself of this, sometimes. In my weaker moments when I want to pretend he is the trauma-induced figment I've been told. Lying doesn't make him go away. In the story, Crooker stalks a man across the hills but is cast aside with specific herbs and wards. So I bought St. John's Wort in little green bottles from Holland and Barrett. Grey and foul-tasting, I swallowed them daily. For a while, it held him back. If you over-medicate, the disease grows stronger. Eventually, I choked power into Crooker. The primroses and daisies on my balcony died, and he found me. I gave up trying then. The wards were supposed to hold him back. The old story doesn't tell how to make him let go. I towel off, but I'm still clammy when I crawl into the tangled sheets of the bed I never made. 
Crooker lies on my chest and wraps his long fingers around my ribs. He drags them up, then presses them down, and the familiar rhythm lulls me to sleep. I've listened to more conversations than I've participated in this year. I live alone, far from my childhood home, in a city where I know nobody. If I open the window, smog chokes in, even now, when there is hardly anybody on the roads. I keep it closed and let the air ripen with heat and stench and dead skin instead. When my cupboards and fridge deplete, I subsist on plain cream crackers until I've sucked the last crumbs from the wrapper. Then I drag myself to the corner shop. I pick up tins and things that will last and stammer out conversation with the man at the checkout, aware of the thickness of my tongue. He gives me quizzical looks. I would hate to transcribe myself. I can't even parse meaning from my own nonsense. Mostly, I sit at my dining room table. It came with the apartment and rocks without half a notebook of paper beneath one leg. Crooker leaves me to it. He is not interested in my professional life, only the personal. Until the two meet. The interview is about mental health, how people are dealing with isolation. I am detached, listening to the respondent's words only closely enough to copy them. He has not been badly affected by the lockdown. He is enjoying working from home. He is grateful for the time to reflect, to make art, to try his hand at baking. I roll my eyes. He's one of those. The moderator, perhaps beginning to panic because her script hinges on his misery, backpedals. She wants to hear about his childhood, past struggles. The respondent quiets, and behind him the flickering static peaks. Then he tells of black moods and fogged brains, of the long dragging sensation of something following him, close enough to breathe down his neck. Something dark, something ancient, something hungry. My fingers cease typing sentences back. Familiarity grips my wrist in ice. The man's accent is similar to my own, to my family's. Earlier, he mentioned growing up in the countryside. But that was all a long time ago. And how did you get rid of him? This hungry man? I'm not sure. I totally got rid of him. Sometimes he comes back, even now, but now I know how to send him packing. It's easy, actually. I just... Static explodes over his words, drowns them out. A sound rips up my throat, the first noise I would have made in days if it didn't die on my tongue. The noise lifts from the static, or rather, it is the static, warped into a word that stabs like rain. I leap up and my chair tips back, thudding against the carpet. The grip on my hand tightens and all I can do is clamp my eyes shut, screw up my face like a child and moan for it all to go away. Moss and mildew cut through the human stench, prise open my lips and crawl through the gaps in my teeth to suffocate my throat like balls of cotton wool. It pokes at my eyes too until I open them. Crooker stands before me, dark and hunched. Black rot bubbles across his skin. Moisture drips from his lank hair and pricks the flesh of my forearm. My eyes follow the drip curling down my arm, winding through the forest of hair standing on end to the crook of my wrist. 
Here it pauses, taking in the curious merging of bark and flesh melded together, forking like the branch of a tree. Crooker and I are conjoined. Instinct makes me try to pull away, but I know the action is futile even as I do it. He doesn't move at all, so neither can I. I grab the laptop, gone black with inactivity. No matter what way I tilt the screen, I cannot find any reflection at all. Once I recover from my initial shock, I am reasonably calm, considering. I've always known he was there, after all. I've spent long enough staring into the mirror to dull some of the horror of his features. Most problematic are the hands. I still have both, but the left hangs beside a contorted third, beneath the knot that is our wrists. It is not very practical. I still have fifteen minutes of a transcript to finish typing up for one. That is rather low on my priority list, though. Crooker stares at me. He drips onto the carpet. His stench makes me woozy. His expression is unreadable, but I sense he is as confused about this as I am. Eventually, I manage to move back to the table, and Crooker takes a heavy step after me. The floor moans beneath his weight. I return to the audio. By the time the static gives way to voices, the conversation has moved on. I listen anyway, standing before the table and tapping the chipped wood. Crooker hovers beside me. A flake of hardened skin falls onto the table and a maggot wriggles behind it. The interview ends and I replay from the start. I listen closer than before, desperate for clues. His name is Lewis, who grew up in the countryside, a small town. His accent is similar to mine. He, too, has met Crooker, and he knows how to get rid of him. Wasn't there a Lewis in my primary school class? I don't remember well. That all seems so long ago. I look over at Crooker. A beetle crawls from the hole of his eye. I don't know where he is. My voice is creaky and unfamiliar. But you do, don't you? The grey chokehold of the city releases in a wave of green fields. I sit in the window seat crooker beside me. We are an odd couple out for a day trip. The train is only supposed to be for essential travel. Bound limb to limb with a demon, I am fairly certain this constitutes essential. I spin the rectangle of my phone in my free hand, wrist resting on the plastic train table. It is faintly sticky and smells of lemons. Nobody but me seems to be able to see crooker, not even when we struggled through the turnstiles. I flip my phone onto its front and slide open the camera. It cuts right through me to the peeling beige vinyl of the headrest. A sheet of rain lashes the window. I cringe back. Crooker creaks his head to look at me. I look back. His mouth falls open and a word rattles out like a draft. Angry. The houses string together like beads. They are cream stone, dark roofs and white plastic windows. Old but not that old. Nothing distinguishes the one opposite us from the others except for the metal number three nailed on the door. I've been to this house before. For a birthday party, maybe, or perhaps it was next door or three doors up. I don't remember getting off the train. I don't remember walking here. Crooker led the way. It's still raining. 
The drops bounce off the waxy leaves of the bush we stand behind just off the darkened pavement and across the street from the house. The door opens. A figure steps out swaddled in a hood. I squint to see his face, but an umbrella blooms like a black flower to obscure it. It cups his head as he hurries down the garden path past the ivy-choked cobble wall and up the street. Crooker and I step forward in unison. We follow. The ground slopes down, speeding us. We weave through people milling around the streets with anoraks and plastic bags for life. I keep my eye on Lewis as he hurries through the village. Soon the houses turn their backs on us and we are walking down a narrow path. Trees tip in from the side, their roots crawl down the bank and onto the path like fingers, and rainwater sluices over them. Crooker and I trudge through the puddles. Goose flesh prickles through the water slickness of my arms. Lewis glances over his shoulder. Crooker and I drop back as though his eyes are the screaming buffer of the wind. He keeps walking and so do we. The path narrows, we are pressed tight between the unforgiving stone of a building and the grasping branches of the wild. A moan crawls from Crooker, I can't breathe. Lewis will tell me how to be rid of him finally. He speeds up and so do we. Water sloshes over my trainers and eats into my socks. My feet feel rubbed and red, doused in ice and burning. None of that matters. The path spits us out onto a road as forked as our arm. Cliffs and hills clamber in the distance, slashed with green and grey. It is here that I first met him, where I got lost in a storm. It is here it will end. Lewis will tell me how I want to grab him, beg him to tell me, shake him, slap him, scream. I am so hungry. A car rumbles past and its tires make a wave of a puddle. I don't feel a cold hit. We lose sight of Lewis and a noise bloats in my throat. Then we spot him. He stopped on the bridge, its stone dyed black by the rain. The river rips below, dark and tumbling. We almost run across the road, Crooker and I. We are so close. Lewis turns and reminds me what my face looked like before Crooker blotted it out. Before Lewis pulled out his wards and his pills and sent us away. Thunder like a book snapping shut. Crooker is no longer attached to my arm. He is on my chest, in my chest. I step forward. Water squelches from my trainers where they meet the stone of the bridge. Lewis waits. He takes down his umbrella. Dark, wet fingers of hair glue to his forehead. Crooker clamps at my jaw, holds my chin. I force my mouth open, force words like bile up my throat. All that scrapes out is... Lewis lifts his hand to my chest and shoves. I fall into the knife of the river. Water pours in rivulets. Heavy steps, feet like roots we drag from the shallows, onto the bank, sinking beneath the swell. Light cuts the air, fracturing the sky into a million tiny drops. Thunder drums. We crawl up the hill towards the quaking warmth of flesh. Hollow, so hollow, inside sloshing with nothing but rain and rock. Hungry, huddled boy. We croon 
our ancient lullaby, and fear splits him in two. Croker. In our final tale, we meet two friends, Jody and Pete. Thick as thieves they were. They enjoyed exploring their town and searching for hidden treasures, but they barely paid attention to that old abandoned wreck center. And in this tale, shared with us by author Seth Borgen, Jody and Pete learn of a schoolmate who went missing, last seen at the wreck center, and they knew they had to investigate. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Kyle Akers, Nicole Doolin, Graham Rowett, Erica Sanderson, Danielle McRae, Ellie Hirschman, and Nicole Goodnight. So if you find yourself searching for clues, stick to the buildings and main areas. Whatever you do, stay out of the witch grass. They say something haunts the old rec center on Oviatt Street. I need you to remember that. My best friend, Pete, died inside its walls when he was twelve and a half and I was twelve. I need you to remember his name. There are other names, but I don't know their stories. Someone remembers them, I'm sure. I hope. I hope someone remembers me. The rec center looked old and heavy, and probably did when it was new. If it was ever new. Gray bricks the size of moving boxes crisscrossed with thick lines of green moss where mortar should have been. A big, heavy door out front that looked like it didn't want to move, and tiny windows that looked more like ornaments than windows. It was as if a thousand years ago someone was building a medieval tower and gave up after two stories. No one can remember the rec center ever being open. Not in my lifetime. Not in my parents, either. Rumor has it the building used to be a small ironworks before it used to be a rec center. But no one knew that for sure, either. But there it was... Two streets over from my house, three streets over from Pete's, pressed snug between a tennis court no one ever used, a Revolutionary War cemetery, and across the street from the park, which, geographically, somehow made the abandoned structure both right square in the middle of our neighborhood and utterly secluded at the same time. All of this is not to imply there was ever anything the least bit scary about the place growing up. No strange sounds emanating from its depths. No chills up our spines when Pete and I walked past twice a day to and from school. 
No urban legends about dead Civil War soldiers or cheerleader ghosts. Our entire lives, more than anything, it was just this strange but ultimately forgettable piece of landscape. Like how sometimes there's a rusted-out mailbox in front of a piece of land where there never was a house. Or a yellow yield sign in the middle of the woods. Sure, there's a story behind how they got there. There's got to be. But if you don't already know it, who cares what it is? The old rec center on Oviatt Street was just one of those things. At least, it was right up until kids started disappearing in the summer of 1986. School had just let out, and Pete and I weren't even remotely thinking about the two older kids who disappeared while on a date back in May. Or the eighth grader from the next town over who disappeared after a baseball game two weeks before. Maybe all that was the only thing adults were talking about, but if they were... The talk wasn't penetrating Kid World. Kid World right then was wake up, go outside, and don't come home until the streetlights come on. That's it. And that's exactly what Pete and I were doing. The park was where the third grade building used to be before they tore it down back in the 60s. Now it was a square block of neatly trimmed grass and some swings. The plan that day was to use my metal detector to excavate whatever was falling out of third graders' pockets back in the 50s and 60s, which was turning out to be a minor disappointment. Mostly, we were just finding bottle caps, and not even old ones. Another orange crush. Hmm? Another orange crush. Couldn't be more than a week old. We brought two bags with us. One for junk and one for artifacts. One was filling faster than the other. At this point, I think we're just cleaning. Hmm. Great. He wasn't listening. Hey, this was your idea, Magellan. Yeah. Sorry. It's just... He pointed at the rec center. Is that... Theo Sasser? Theo Sasser was a kid from our grade. We weren't really friends, but we knew him. He had one of those heads that looked big but you could never tell if it was actually big or just his hair. And he was wearing his favorite shirt, a red t-shirt that said, Rad, across the chest. Even from about 50 yards away, that was undoubtedly Theo Sasser. I guess so. I went back to my metal detector. So what? So, what's he doing at the rec center? I don't know. Why does anyone go to the rec center? They don't? I thought about that for a second and realized he was right. So, for a few minutes, we just stood there, 
watching Theo Sasser walk slow, meticulous laps around the old building. Like he was looking for something. He is kind of a weirdo. I mean, harmless and all, but weird. Remember that time he invented his own language and started talking to everyone with it? And if you tried to play along, he'd look at you like you were crazy? You didn't know the language, Jody. You probably did sound crazy. Just then, Theo Sasser stopped, got down on his knees, and started really scrutinizing one of the ground-level windows. Whatever he was looking for, I guess he found it. I guess. The streetlights flickered on all around the park and up and down Oviet. So we packed up our gear and headed home. Both of us assuming that'd be the last time we thought about Theo Sasser for the rest of the summer. Theo Sasser disappeared that night. His dog, Biloxi, ran away earlier in the day and he'd gone out to look for him. Two days later, no sign of Theo Sasser or Biloxi. Unlike the previous disappearances, this one hit Kid World like a lightning strike. By all accounts, Pete and I were the last people to see Theo Sasser anywhere. We told our parents, and our parents told the police. It was late afternoon, and we watched from the swings in the park as two police cars pulled up to the rec center. Four police officers made their way to the heavy-looking front door, fumbled with some keys, and disappeared inside. We watched and waited. We didn't have to wait long. We weren't expecting to see anything as dramatic as a train of gurneys rolling out the door, which we didn't. Or Theo Sasser, alive and well, or in some other condition, which we didn't. More than anything, all we wanted, I think, was some sense that the adults whose job it was to keep us safe were one step closer to figuring out this thing that needed figuring out. That inside the rec center, they'd find... I don't know what. Something. And that something would lead to some other something. And that would lead to something else. And then, eventually, Pete and I could go back to being who we were before we knew what this kind of uneasiness felt like. That's all we needed that day. Instead... What happened was the police officers poked around for about ten minutes, got back into their cars, and... Seconds later, it was like they were never even there. Well, shit. It really didn't seem like they looked all that hard, did it? They probably didn't believe us. Why wouldn't they? Because adults think we're stupid. I thought about that for a second, and realized he was right. Between the two of us, 
Pete came up with the ideas, and it was up to me to make the ideas happen. For example, him deciding we were going to excavate the park for artifacts, and me figuring out how we were going to get our hands on a metal detector. When a new idea formed, something would turn over inside those gray eyes of his, hardening his irises into two cool moonstones. He wouldn't always tell me right off what the idea was, but I could always tell when my life was about to get a little bit more complicated. Sitting there in those swings, motionless, staring at the darkening rack center, humidity roiling around us like snakes, Pete got that look in his eyes. The next day, Pete and I hauled the metal detector to the rec center instead of the park. Sweeping the brown, unkempt witch grass for clues, it turns out, was a lot like excavating the park for artifacts. In other words, bottle caps. But Pete was determined. He had no idea what we were looking for. But he was convinced that someone needed to treat this place like a proper crime scene. Even if it was only us. As for me, I don't know what I thought. The police's search of the building was haphazard at best. But that didn't necessarily mean there was anything to find. Deep down... I guess I was still holding out hope for a reasonable explanation for all this. But Pete and I were a team. So if he was there, I was there. Hours passed. The sun beat down. I'm sure more than a few kids from our grade saw us from the park and were like, Is that Jody and Pete? What are they doing at the rec center? Whatever we were doing... We kept at it. Bottle cap. BB gun pellet. Dime. Bottle cap. The sky was reddening, and I was about ready to call it a day when the metal detector came alive. I kneeled down and fished out of the tangle of dead grass what I thought at first was a nickel, or maybe a keychain. When I gave it a close look, my stomach went into freefall. Pete was off examining the base of the building. I called him over. What was Theo Sasser's dog's name again? The Loxy? Why? I handed him the metallic ID tag with the word Biloxi etched into it. His eyes were normal-sized, and then they weren't. I knew it. I knew it. I mean, I didn't really, but I sort of thought we were just messing around, but deep down I knew it. For the record, that tag doesn't tell us that much that we didn't already know. I was trying desperately to cling to the just-messing-around phase of whatever this was. I could feel my fingers slipping. Are you kidding? The last evidence of Theo Sasser's dog being anywhere is here. Same with Theo Sasser. 
And I'll bet you money the same is true for those other kids, too. Fine. Then we'll hand that over to the police, and they'll look again. <laughs> Before, they just thought we were stupid. Now they'll think we're stupid and liars. Do you really think a dog collar tag is going to make all the difference? Then what? I followed Pete back to where he had just been at the base of the building. One of the ground-level windows was partially broken out. If someone about our size wanted to, they could just about squeeze through. I say if, but that's undoubtedly exactly what Theo Sasser did. We were kneeling in the exact spot we last saw Theo Sasser, looking at exactly what he'd been looking at. Beyond that broken window, a faint burning smell, like simmering charcoal, and a blackness so thick you could hold it in your hands. Maybe he had heard something. A yip or a bark. Something made him squeeze through that broken window. Sometimes there's no telling what a person will do for their only friend. Did he ever see daylight again? No way. You haven't even heard my plan. You want us to sneak in there and find some evidence the police can't ignore. Okay, yes, that's my plan. That's not a plan. That's an idea. If we don't do it, there's nobody else. That's a reason, not a plan. Then what's the plan? Do nothing? The thing about plans is, they take time. But time isn't something you have a lot of when you suddenly find yourself careening out of control. A couple of minutes ago, we had nothing to show for our efforts but a small pile of bottle caps. And now here we were, contemplating breaking and entering in search of four dead bodies. Bodies. The word hit me like a cartoon anvil. The moment where I'd finally given up hope that any of the four kids were ever going to be found alive had already come and gone. Both Pete and I were on the other side of that now. I looked around. The Biloxi tag. The sun hanging low behind the trees. The broken ground-level window. The burning smell and the impossible blackness within. <sighs> Give me tonight to come up with something. Jody. We're going to need some stuff. Flashlights, some rope, maybe. I'm not sure yet. Besides, it's almost dark. The streetlights are going to be on soon. We can't take the metal detector in with us, and we can't leave it out here. One night. That's all I'm asking for. Reluctantly, Pete agreed. One night. We packed up our gear and headed home. Looking back, I knew he hadn't really agreed to anything. Or should have known. 
What he was going to do had already hardened inside those gray eyes of his. Two cool moonstones. My life was about to get a little bit more complicated. I guess I just wanted to believe him. Without a plan to fall back on. I was too scared not to. Pete never made it home that night. Or the next day. Five kids and one dog and counting. I told my parents everything there was to tell. That we'd found Biloxi's ID tag by the rec center. That Pete wanted to go inside, but I talked him out of it. Or at least thought I had. Whether anyone believed me or not, the police again searched the old rec center on Oviatt maybe a little bit more thoroughly than the first time, and again found absolutely nothing. First, they thought we were stupid. Then, they thought we were liars. Now, I was getting the distinct impression that I was just making everyone sad. It didn't matter. We could never count on them. Pete had it right. If we didn't do it, there's nobody else. Just like I told him I would, I did come up with a plan for getting into the rec center. As luck would have it, depending on your definition of luck, my plan for a two-person fact-finding mission could serve just as well for a one-person rescue mission. The first night I could tell my parents weren't watching me like hawks, I snuck out of the house long after they and the whole town were fast asleep. A bag of supplies looped over my shoulder. In formulating the plan, I kept coming back to two things. First, chances are all five kids and one dog, though it was only four kids at the time, entered the rec center through the broken window. Other than that, the building was as sealed as a tooth. Second, for whatever reason, none of them were able to get out the same way they came in. If we, I, wanted this to go any different, there had to be another way in. While sweeping the rec center with Pete, I had discovered a long-defunct drainage pipe jutting out of a slope of grass leading down into the Revolutionary War Cemetery. I didn't think anything of it at the time. Since then, I'd thought of little else. Zigzagging through yards I knew by heart. The neighborhood cast blue by moon glow. Crickets screaming, I made my way to that pipe. I switched on my headlamp and looked in. Whatever purpose the pipe might have served once upon a time... All it did now was lead directly beneath the rec center. If there was another way inside, that was it. I pulled my skateboard out of the bag, positioned it at the mouth of the pipe, and positioned myself stomach down on the board. In between the skateboard and my spine, my heart beat wild. I pushed my backpack in first. Then, mostly using my feet, 
I slowly rolled my way in. On the one hand, my head swam with excitement when my shoulders actually fit. On the other, that meant I was really doing this. Like I said, sometimes there's no telling what a person will do for their only friend. I kept my backpack in front of me just in case the pipe narrowed. If it couldn't go through, neither could I, and I'd be able to reverse myself to safety. My forward movement consisted of shoving the backpack ahead about half a foot, inching forward until my forehead was almost touching it, and doing it again. Focusing on this instead of, oh, I don't know, being under the ground, not a soul on earth knowing where I was or what I was doing, dying a human clot in an abandoned drain pipe, I was actually making pretty good time. Seeing I was getting closer to the rec center, I caught a faint glimpse of light coming from somewhere other than my headlamp. Thinking it might just be an optical illusion, I switched off and gave my eyes a few seconds to adjust to what should have been choking, impenetrable darkness. But no, there it was. Through the thin slit separating my pack from the top of the pipe, something was dimly glowing about ten feet ahead. Something like an upside-down gas burner on its lowest setting, or a dying dome light. I crept forward until the light was right on top of me. It took some doing, but I was able to twist myself so that my back was pressed against the skateboard, and I was looking directly into the light. The light source was coming from the other side of a round metal grate, maybe half the size of a manhole cover. The grating was nearly caked over with some kind of corrosion or fungus. I pressed my hand to it. The metal was strangely warm. I pressed harder. With some resistance, the grate raised and slid away. I was suddenly drenched in light. Without giving myself time to think about what I was doing, why start now? I tossed my backpack through the hole and climbed. The hole should have led me directly through the floor of the rec center's basement. It took me a few moments to piece together that it hadn't. Instead of standing in a dark, dusty room in the bowels of an abandoned building, I found myself outside. But no outside that made any kind of sense. The light coming from the other side of the grate had been sunlight. I was standing on lush, green grass in what seemed to be a clearing in some woods. Several feet in front of me, the ground curved down into a black pool of water. This pool, kidney-shaped and still as a sheet of volcanic glass, connected to a larger pool just beyond some towering trees. The only way across was a small wooden bridge, like something out of a fairy tale. On the other side, the sprawl of grass came to an end at the base of a sheer rock bluff, maybe two or three stories high. 
stairs were carved directly into the bluff, leading up to a second shelf of ground that I couldn't see. The hole I'd just come out of made a perfect circle in the grass. Below, the drainage pipe and skateboard, just as I'd left them. The top of the grate was thick with damp, green moss. In time, nature would have sealed it over completely. I knew none of this was possible, but that didn't mean it wasn't happening. Wherever this was, whatever it was, there was no arguing with the fact that I was here, and it didn't change what I'd come here to do. I picked up my backpack. I crossed the bridge. the stairs. At the top of the stone stairs, there was a long gravel path inside a tree tunnel. I made my way down the path, fine white gravel crunching under my tennis shoes, sunlight flickering through the canopy of leaves. Something glinted in the middle of the path. It was Biloxi's ID tag. The same one Pete had in his pocket when he lied to me about waiting a day before returning to the rec center. Then I noticed something else. The white gravel wasn't white gravel. It was teeth. Chipmunk teeth. Squirrel teeth. Some larger. Cats and dogs. Some larger. Soon, the tree tunnel gave way to a large, red-brick manor house, a deceptively asymmetric assortment of blocky turrets, steep eaves, and jagged twists of wrought iron. Soft string music and light chatter filled the air. Out back, a group of small children were playing jacks. They didn't seem to notice me. A little girl with her blonde hair done in two tight braids was up. The other children chanted, Knucklebones, knucklebones, where are you? Knucklebones, knucklebones, give me two. Knucklebones, knucklebones, more for me. Knuckle bones, knuckle bones, give me three. I peered in through one of the windows at a party in full swing. There was dancing, eating, lounging on chaise couches, smoking through long cigarette holders. Though it was hard to make out specific words, there was lots of raucous, open-mouthed laughter. Everyone in attendance looked like they were dressed for a period costume party. But no one had decided on a period. Some of the women wore long, shimmering gowns. Others had bustles and carried parasols. Some were wearing fringe and pearls and cloche hats. The men were a disjointed array of waistcoats, tails, top hats, cravats jodhpurs, loafers, and riding boots. 
one thing every guest had in common was powdery white skin and painted-on moles. Those tending to the party-goers wore what looked like old movie usher uniforms. Maroon velvet tunics, brass buttons, pillbox hats. Every inch of what should have been exposed skin, face, neck, hands, was wrapped in medical gauze. Despite there being no holes for seeing or breathing, they deftly moved from little group to little group, carrying silver trays of hors d'oeuvres and champagne. The longer I watched the party through the window, rounds of jacks unspooling to my left, the more I became convinced that these, let's just call them people, couldn't see me. They couldn't see me any more than a record on a record player can see who's listening. Suddenly convinced this was the case, I went inside for a closer look. Upon entering, the string music, the chatter, the laughter, along with the same simmering charcoal smell that had been emanating from the rec center's basement, enveloped me. The air was aggressively hot, but the party-goers seemed perfectly cool and content. As for me, it was like walking through a sauna. As inconspicuously as I could, I moved from room to room, keeping my eyes open for Pete, the Osasser, anyone other than me who might be at this party uninvited. I turned a corner, and standing directly in front of me was one of those bandage-faced waiters. It held out a tray of champagne flutes for me to take one. Since crawling through the grate back in the clearing, this was the first time anyone had acknowledged my presence. As hot as I was, a cold wave of terror passed through me. I shook my head. It nodded as if to say, very good, and moved on. A woman made her entrance into the largest room in the manor, causing something of a stir. In describing her as being large, I don't mean in terms of weight. She was a head taller than the other guests. Her gown was an iridescent silver that shimmered like a gasoline rainbow with a petticoat so wide there might have been four more of her inside. Her hair was a mound of black, glossy waves adorned with fresh dandelions and Queen Anne's lace. Like the other guests, her skin was chalky white. But they all had one, maybe two painted moles, while her face was covered with them. Upon her entrance... The room's chatter became airy, excited murmurs, followed by clinking glass, followed by an anticipation-soaked hush. Oh, I'm not one for public speaking, but I do welcome you to my home. It has been so long. And some of you had to come so far. 
I do so enjoy company. In a dark, empty house, in a dark, empty wood, the air is the same color as the inside of a pauper's grave. A faraway look came over her, as if she was troubled by an old memory. She pushed the memory aside. Besides, what is it to celebrate alone? It's like celebrating without your skin. Just because you're smiling, that doesn't mean you're happy. (laughs) The guests laughed as if that were some warm, well-trod maxim. And we do have so much to celebrate, don't we? (laughs) Just then, the lights throughout the manor wavered, seeming to struggle for life. They evened out a few moments later, but dimmer than before. At the same moment, the air grew noticeably cooler. Oh my... (laughs) Someone had better wake up the furnace man. (laughs) That gave me an idea. There was still one place I hadn't looked for Pete. She was right. I had come so far. I just had a little farther to go. I found the door to the basement. Making my way down the squeaking wooden stairs, chatter and laughter and light disappearing behind me, the smell of burning grew more and more intense. The walls looked like smaller versions of the rec center's fat, gray bricks with moss for mortar. I stopped on the bottom step. There was a man standing there, lit by the room's only light source orange glow radiating from the open feed door of a furnace so large it could have been its own room. From out of the furnace, black pipes reached up into the ceiling like tentacles of a giant octopus. The man was old and sickly thin. His beard, wild white hair, and wrinkles were blasted with soot. He wore black goggles, a leather apron, and held a shovel like a soldier on sentry duty. I know, I know, more fuel. He overturned a large scuttle, sliding something heavy and wet onto the ground. At first, I thought it was a bunch of soggy racks. Then, I noticed an arm jutting out of a sleeve, like a pale, broken tree branch. The man's shovel severed the arm, and he heaved it into the furnace. What was left on the ground was a small, limbless torso, wrapped in red cloth. The letters R-A-D written across the chest. Like it was made of meringue, the man sliced the torso into two pieces, straight down the center. 
One piece went into the fire. Then the other. Inside the furnace, the fire burned white hot. The heat settling back into the air couldn't touch the cold threads running through my body. I bounded up the stairs, taking two steps at a time. Topside, the grotesque party whirled on, the lights blazing bright, the air like a fever tinged with new char. I scanned the room for the closest door. If I could make it that far, maybe I could make it to the grate. If I could make it to the grate, maybe I wouldn't die inside this nightmare place. Yeah, I'd come so far. Too far. I threaded between partygoers and servers, making sure not to touch any of them or anything. I was almost to the door when an iron-like grip took hold of my shoulder and spun me around. Looming over me was the lady of the manor. Well, now, who is this trying to sneak off without saying hello? The smile on her mole-scattered face went hollow. The room, and all of the adjoining rooms, went silent. Mid-conversation, mid-stride, mid-laughter, the guests and servers stopped what they were doing, turned their heads, and stared. She leaned in, eyeing me like I was some kind of strange little oddity. I don't know you. How did you get here? I assumed I was just about dead. That was, after all, the point of all this. Well, maybe not the point. The engine. I snuck in when they weren't looking, up through a grate they'd forgotten was there. But they were looking now. If this were the world as I knew it, there would be no reason not to tell the truth. It wasn't, but the truth seemed just about as good a plan as any. I took a breath and a step forward. I'm looking for my friend. His name is Pete Rainier. He's about gay tall. His favorite book is the novelization of The Last Starfighter. He eats Flintstone vitamins as candy instead of vitamins. And when the weird new girl at school throws a birthday party and he's the only one who comes, he makes her feel better by saying, don't worry about it, parties are for assholes. And you're friends forever. I can't understand a word you're saying, but what I'm hearing is that you do not have an invitation... The guests whispered back and forth to one another, some like a question, 
some like an accusation. Their combined whispering congealing into a single hissing sound. Without moving a single muscle, the woman's smile went from hollow to something vaguely genuine. Though that's not to say you aren't welcome. <laughs> she held out her hand. Right in front of me, her fingernails grew into talons. She blinked. And her pupils went white, and her irises became black, sideways slits, like a goat's eyes. For some reason, none of this seemed all that unreasonable. It would be nice, said a voice inside my head that I was pretty sure was my own, if all of this could be over. I could almost imagine taking her hand being led back down into the basement, crawling into the furnace's open feed door, sleeping. Again, the lights fluttered and dimmed. The whispering broke. The air cooled. The lady of the manor shot angry looks around the room. Oh, that damn man! The dandelions and Queen Anne's lace in her hair began to wither. A syrupy black liquid began oozing from her moles. He has one job. The spell, or whatever it was, broken. I slipped out the door behind me. Outside again, I turned around and found myself face to face with the blonde, pigtailed girl. She was no longer playing jacks. She looked sullen and sickly. Her braids were frayed and coming undone. She cradled something small in the palm of her hand. My ball won't bounce. We can't play if the ball won't bounce. She opened her hand, revealing a human eyeball. The iris. Moonstone gray. A lifetime of mourning, no matter how long that might be, would have to wait. I ran. I was almost to the path of teeth when the manor's windows exploded outward and countless bandage faces swarmed from the holes, skittering like angry ants down the walls on their hands and knees. I ran harder, teeth crunching under my feet. I ran with a ferocity my body had never known, like I was never going to need my muscles or lungs ever again. A din of footfalls closing in behind me. Down the path. Down the stone stairs. Up above, a wave of bandage faces exploded over the rock bluff. Crossed the bridge and was almost to the round hole in the grass when something jerked me backwards, pulling me to the ground. I don't know 
know where she came from, but the lady of the manor was suddenly towering over me, her moles oozing, white dandelion puffs swirling from her disheveled hair like bits of ash. She had me by the backpack. Coal for the fire! Coal for the fire! Coal for the fire! The bandage faces circling. I slid my shoulders out of the straps and dove for the hole. Still clutching my backpack in her talons, still shrieking, she swiped at me with her other hand and missed. Underground, contorted inside the pipe, my knees and elbows skinned bloody, I scrambled onto the skateboard and pushed off. For a moment, the lady's screams were muffled and far away. Then her head and one of her arms filled the hole. The rest of her stuck on the other side. Cool for the fire! The words echoed inside the pipe like madness. Her talons almost on me. I pushed off again and rolled clear. I kept going. Pushing off. Kicking kicking. Without my bag to slow me down, I was able to keep up at decent speed. The lady unwedged herself from the hole. The yelling stopped, followed by what sounded like oranges tumbling into a bathtub. Bandage faces poured down into the pipe like black water. In front of me, the pipe mouth grew larger and larger. The moon-splashed cemetery so close I could just about touch it. The bandage faces were almost on me. One final kick and I was out. My body and the skateboard clattering to ugly stops in the grass of the cemetery. Nothing left to give. All reserves burned and gone. I propped myself up against a headstone and waited for the deluge of clutching, grasping, dragging, bandage-wrapped hands that were right behind me. But nothing came. Just churring crickets. The buzz of street lamps. Damp grass. And the airy stillness of a summer night. I fished my headlamp from my pocket and flashed the light inside the pipe. Empty. A straight shot disappearing into the darkness that lived below the old rec center. Whatever threshold I had crossed, I had crossed back. I was on the other side again. Out of reach. I collapsed onto my back stared at the stars and took in deep breaths of air that until then I had no idea was so sweet. About a week after I saw the building's true face, the police found my backpack strewn somewhere in the rec center's witch grass. It was nearly cut to shreds. I told them I forgot it at the park a few days before and had no idea how it got across the street. 
It's what they were hoping I'd say. With no new disappearances reported, why jinx things by asking more questions? For just about everyone in town, life couldn't get back to normal fast enough. Lucky them. I could imagine Pete saying. For the rest of us, there was no going back. Or, I should say, there was no leaving. I said something haunts the old rec center on Oviatt Street. Only, it's not the lady of the manor, or her faceless horde, or even the furnace man. The thing to remember is they don't want you to be scared. They want you to come right in and make yourself at home. They'd leave out a welcome mat if they thought they could get away with it. They want to celebrate. And like the lady of the manor said, what is it to celebrate alone? No, the something that haunts the rec center is me. It was only going to be a matter of time before kids started going missing again. When they did, ten years later, I was ready. You see, I had a plan. Since then, a lot has changed around town. A lot hasn't. The neighborhood park is still there. The tennis court, too. Mostly unused. Once or twice a week, local historians come to the Revolutionary War Cemetery to take pictures or make grave rubbings. And, yes, the rec center still stands. Still abandoned. Well, I guess that depends on your definition of abandoned. An old witch haunts the woods behind the rec center, the kids around town say. Don't go near it or the witch will get you. And they mostly stay away. But every now and then some brave kid comes along precisely because someone told them not to. And they leave with the scare of their lives. I've actually gotten pretty good at that part over the years. But it's a scare they can walk away from. Well, run away from. Maybe some of them run all the way to the police and tell them what they saw. But why would they believe some stupid kid? All that matters is they run. And I've never seen the same kid twice. They remember. At least, I hope they do. From time to time, someone from the city or fire department will go inside the rec center do whatever it is they came to do, and leave. Just like the cops back in 86. When that happens, I'd like to think it's because whatever's inside has moved on or went back to wherever it came from or was hibernating. Or, better yet, I'd starved it to death. But then one day, the bricks will seem just a little bit more solid than they did the day before, the walls a little less bowed, and I'll know it found just enough coal, a bird or a squirrel or a cat, 
to keep the fires burning. No, it... She's... Still in there. Waiting. And just like any good predator... She knows when to not be seen. survived our terrifying tales. Join us again next week, if you dare. The No Sleep Podcast Hour is presented by WNSP in conjunction with Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast Hour, we thank you for tuning in and for being a supportive Season Pass member. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.